Please remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also the sermon text from Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Give your ear to the gospel of God. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word in the way that it shows us your kingdom, the way that it shows us your son Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we contemplate and consider your word today, that you would do the work that you can by your spirit to make us into his image, conform us to be like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Near the end of the church year, as Pastor Sexton alluded to before, Advent begins in December. And as is usual for this time of year, the readings are taken from near the end of Jesus' life. And the gospel reading today is a parable. It's actually the third in a set of parables that Jesus tells the religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees, in a major confrontation in the temple uh, shortly before Jesus' death. Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem, you know, the triumphal entry, with great crowds and there was cheering, and he turned over the tables of the money changers and cleansed the temple and began uh, teaching and preaching. And great crowds have gathered to listen to him. And the Pharisees, in chapter 21, one chapter earlier, uh, confront him. They come to him in the temple courts and they say, By what authority are you doing these things? We've got the pedigree, in other words. We've got the education. We have the position. Who do you think you are? And of course, Jesus responds by asking them, Tell me about John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? We don't know, they said. And he says, you know what this reminds me of? This is like 
and then he starts telling them parables. Right? That's where we are. He begins telling them parables. And the Pharisees, it says in chapter 21, verse 45, uh, perceived that he was speaking about them. And it makes them murderously angry. So you see the passage we're reading today is all part of this controversy in the temple. And now these, these parables are aimed at the Pharisees, at, at religious types, as those who are committed but not converted. That's who he's talking to in these parables, in this passage. But we're going to see here as we study, there's lessons for everyone because the kinds of problems that Jesus addresses in this parable run through every human heart. And like all parables, it's a comparison. It's an analogy. It's close enough to life to make a point, but different enough Sorry, it's close enough to life to make contact, but different enough to make a point. Parables arrest your attention and make you think. So what is Jesus wanting us to think about? He's wanting the Pharisees and us to meditate on both God's justice and his mercy. On God's repeated, continual, gracious invitation to come to himself and the dire consequences of ultimately rejecting him. And so as we walk through this parable today, we're going to see the invitation that God gives. We're going to examine the ways that it's often rejected, and then finally we're going to conclude with how to accept it. The invitation that God gives to everyone, the ways that it's often rejected, and how to accept it. First, the invitation. He says this in verse 2. Jesus spoke to them and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. The kingdom, Jesus said, is like a wedding celebration. You see uh, from verse 4 that the animals are killed, his dinner's ready, it's a wedding feast. Okay, what does that mean? Well, just like feasts, wedding feasts are occasions for joyous celebration, the kingdom is a place of ultimate joy that comes from being in a right relationship with God and experiencing the fullness of his presence. It's also, think about a feast. It's a wedding dinner, a royal wedding dinner. It isn't just for basic sustenance. It's the best food. Lots of the best food. The kingdom, in other words, is a place of overflowing blessing and abundance. It speaks to the idea that God's presence with his people satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul. The kingdom is a place where people find fulfillment and contentment in their relationship with God. And just like a wedding is a covenant union, a coming together of two individuals in a relationship marked by intimacy and love, the kingdom of God represents a profound union between God and and his people. That's what he means. The kingdom of God is like a wedding celebration. And throughout the Bible, marriage is often used as a metaphor for the covenant relationship between God and his people, just like in Isaiah 54, where it says, for your maker, the creator, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, he is called the God of the whole earth. You see, God's people, 
He says God is like a husband. He's in covenant with his people to bring them joy, overflowing abundance, his presence. And what Jesus does is he takes those Old Testament types, those images and promises, and he says in verse 2 that the marriage is to God's son. He points to all these, the fulfillment of those promises in him. Right? The invitation, the invitation that he's giving in this passage is, as Pastor J.C. Ryle says this, quote, In short, it is an offer of food to the hungry, joy to the mourner, a home to the outcast, a loving friend to the lost. It is glad tidings. God offers through his dear son to be at peace with sinful man. It's a wedding celebration. And the offer, Jesus says, the invitation is to you. The servants, he said, are going out to all who were invited. This is what God offers in his invitation for us to come to be his people, to come to him. Servants are going out. Everywhere that the gospel is preached, everywhere that the word is given, this invitation comes out to come to be united to God by covenant, to have his joy, to have his peace, to have peace with God through his son, as J.C. Ryle said. And so what, what do we expect? God is coming and saying, here, have, have the deepest longings of your soul. Have joy without end. Have eternal life. Have peace with God. And so, of course, this story ends with people just flocking to Jesus and believing in him and having great joy. No, it doesn't end that way. We just read the passage, and you know from experience that very often God's invitation is instead rejected. And Jesus tells us in this passage the three main ways that we do that. There's three ways that the kingdom is often rejected. The first one, he says, simple indifference. You can see that in verse 3. Jesus continued, the king sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't say that he sent out his servants in order to invite people to the wedding. That will come later. But he says, he, said, he sent out his servants to those who were invited, those who were already invited to the wedding. These are people, in other words, who had previously RSVP'd, all right? They'd said, we're going to come. The messengers now are just being sent out to say, the time has come, the party's about to commence. And this happened often in the ancient world that you would have to send out notice. You know, we do that today by like mail or email. Hey, the event's gonna be on this day. They would send out one round of notice. Uh, I'm making preparations for the wedding. And then another round of notice. Hey, everything's ready. This is the day it's going to be on. Or in the case of the parable here, it's already. The wedding is about to commence. Come to the party. Come to the feast. All right? Inexplicably now, it says, though, the people don't want to come. They've said, yes, I, great. The king has invited me. I'm going to come. But now they don't want to come. What an insult not to show up to a royal wedding feast. What will the king do? Well, so it says in verse 4, he sent out other servants 
saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his own business. That word, made light of it, is a Greek word that means not just inattention, but also unconcern. The people originally said, yes, we will come. The day came. They didn't want to come. Other messengers give them the invitation again, and they go back to their daily life as though nothing had happened. Friends, this is, this is shocking behavior from those who are supposed to be the king's friends, people he knew, people who said, yes, we'll be there. Now, of course, this is true in a particular way of the religious leaders of the Jews and the way that they treated Jesus and his messengers in their day. This is true in a particular way of God's old covenant people who knew God, who had been invited continually to him through the prophets and through the scriptures. They had said yes to God once, but then when Jesus showed up on the scene, they didn't like what they saw, and they said, we don't want to come. John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 1, 11. It's true for them in a particular way that Jesus is speaking to. But the same things hold true for nominal Christians today. They like some of Jesus' teachings and the offer of eternal life that he gives But they're always, you know, going to come to church again more regularly when things calm down. Or they've said yes to God in their baptism, and they go regularly to church functions, but they haven't come to a heart religion, to a relationship of love with God through his son, Jesus Christ. They simply don't think that it's important. Some of you, I know, have friends or family members, maybe even some of you in the room today who do not profess Christ, say similar things. They say things like, I'm not against God. I'm not against God. I just, I just don't have time for religion. Or I'm a moral person. I try to do my best. Or I have more time to be serious about my faith after I finish my degree or after the job is set or when the kids are older. But don't you see, don't, don't you see, if God, if God is really there, if Jesus really is who he says he is, and if he really offers what he says he offers, what an absolute insult it would be to be indifferent to him. If Jesus is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh to offer forgiveness and joy and peace, there's nothing more important in the world than him. There's nothing more needful than him. There's nothing more satisfying than him. You're going to get your employment situated before your eternal soul. You're going to come to Christ or come to church when it's more convenient. C.S. Lewis, the author, was right when he said this, quote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink 
and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. End quote. The behavior in the, of the people in this first group in the parable seems utterly irrational. And it is. But that's exactly what you and I do when we prefer our job to God, when we prefer ourself to Christ, when we prefer our family to the gospel. The Bible calls that idolatry when we worship and serve and seek our satisfaction in any other thing than God. It's what underlies our apathy and our indifference. And actually, underneath that indifference is hostility. It's lying dormant there, deep, like a smoldering bed of coals, ready to leap in angry flames anytime it's confronted with God's grace or God's claims on our lives. And that's the second way that Jesus says the kingdom is often rejected. It's rejected through hostility. Think about that for a minute. And now this this illustration works because of how polarized we become as a people uh, politically, which is sad, but we'll use it and you'll you'll understand it. Okay, there are people on on both sides of the political aisle, right, who would never, never attend the wedding of the president's child if they were of the opposing party politically, right? Does that make sense to everybody? For some people, the president could send a personal envoy to their door with a golden gilded invitation and they would still turn them down. All right, in fact, they might enjoy turning them down. They'd say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't come uh, to the president's daughter's wedding. I'm going to be washing my hair that day, right? It's funny here when you think about it. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> and maybe you might even give them you might even give them a swift kick on their way out for all the trouble that they've taken to come inviting you, right? You would never some of you would never never do that. Why? Because you despise them. Right? What's running through your mind and your heart in that moment would be something along the lines of this. I don't care what your office is. Whether that's king or president, I don't care how good the food is, I'm not going to come and eat with you. You see that? The difference is, of course, in this parable, in this story, in reality, the king against which these people rebel and that they are hostile against is perfectly sinless and gracious and kind, and yet they're content still spills out in anger and hostility and rebellion. Look at verse 6. It says, The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Right? The Jewish people, and their leaders in particular, particular, had a history of persecuting and killing the messengers that God sent them. 
being a prophet, being a messenger of God in the Old Testament was a very dangerous calling. Because as you came with God's message of grace and his claims on the life of his people, it stirred up the anger and the hostility that was dormant within them. And often it would end in persecution or killing of the messengers. And I'll tell you that the murder of God's son, God in the flesh, after years of a gracious, harmless, honest life by crowds of Jews and Gentiles, religious, irreligious, wealthy, poor, high, and low, that killing unmasked the dark hostility against God that resides in every human heart. There are still places in the world, and in our culture even, where there's an overt hostility against God. And his messengers are still spitefully used, like it says, or killed. But we shouldn't forget that without the converting grace of God, the same dark impulse lies within each one of us. What lies beneath our indifference to God and his claims on our life? It's a hostility that says, I will not come and dine with you. You will not be my Lord. The application, Jesus says, is to be warned of God's judgment. It says in verse 7, When the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, for the Pharisees, um, the ar- armies and fire are common Old Testament images for God's wrath, right? They would have understood that. But Jesus probably also has in mind the destruction of, the Jer- of Jerusalem, which he's going to talk about in a few chapters, and, and the shift to the Gentile mission when he says this, Let's pick back up in verse 7. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And then he said to his servants in verse 8, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. God had reached out to his people in the Old Testament, the Jews. And and Jesus is not only pointing forward to the ultimate judgment, the ultimate um, burning fire, right? But he also has in mind uh, this shift from the message being primarily to the Jews and then going out to the highways, out to the hedges, to the Gentiles, beginning with Peter and Paul and the other apostles and other church members, the call of the gospel did go out to the highways, to those who previously did not know the king, the Gentiles, and the church began to fill up. Now you and I, if we were, if we were writing this parable, this would, this would be the stopping point, right? Or maybe some of us would have stopped it after, after the first segment. That's a uh, that's a story of judgment and warning. They rejected the call and they were judged. I think some of us would have stopped the parable right there. That's the lesson, okay? 
And some of us maybe would stop it after this segment. But then the, the message goes out and the wedding hall is filled with guests. Message of grace. Right? Jesus doesn't end the parable there. He actually says there's a third common way that the kingdom is rejected, and that's false acceptance. He says in verse 11, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, this is a bizarre ending. I think for modern readers, this is a strange ending uh, to the parable. Why, why did the man get tossed out of the wedding when it seemed like the king is just welcoming anybody at this point? What is, what is Jesus saying? Well, what he's not saying is that you've got to be very good to, to come to the wedding. Because in verse 9, the servants are told to invite as many as you can find. Right, And the hall is filled with both the bad and the good. Their morality is not what Jesus is pointing to. But he is saying that you have to come to God on God's terms. You have to come to God on God's terms. Look, in, in ancient times, just like today, when you go to a wedding, you get dressed up. You wear something that's fit for the occasion. And Jesus is saying that if you want to come into the kingdom, you have to be fit for the kingdom. If you want to come to the wedding, you have to have a wedding garment. And see, when the king confronts the man at the end of the parable here, the man is speechless. Why is he speechless? Because he has no excuse. The reason that this ending is strange for us is because we often fill in the excuses for him. Right? I don't have any wedding garments. I didn't have time to change. I'm too, I'm too poor to get a wedding garment. Right? That's not what the man in the parable says. The man in the parable says absolutely nothing because he has no excuse. There are many commentators who point out in verses 8 through 10 that when the servants are gathering in all of these guests, that the people, unlike the first group, are leaving immediately to go with the servants. Right? That's what that word means. The servants are just going out, and they're gathering them. They're taking them immediately to the wedding. That means that whoever the servants are finding, that nobody is dressed up for the wedding. When they're met on the highway, headed out of town, and the servants get to them, they're not dressed for the wedding. Nobody has time to go home and get the proper wedding clothes, and that tells you something. What it tells you is the king is providing the wedding garments. You've got to come to God on God's terms, like I told you. But God's terms are this. Take and wear the perfect righteousness of my son. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation says, One of the elders said to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. God provides through his Son the needed garment, and that's his terms. Come to him 
in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. What this person is lacking at the end of the parable here is repentance and true faith. He's in the church, yes, but he's not in Christ. There's a difference, right? He has not taken the garment that the king has provided. He has not taken the perfect righteousness of Christ and clothed with Christ, as Paul says. Okay. So if that's all true, then how do you accept the invitation? How do you accept the garment and come to the kingdom? How do you accept, respond to the call? In the parable, I think Jesus shows us two things, two things that you have to have in order to accept the invitation. One is an utter rejection of self-reliance or your own sense of worthiness. An utter rejection of self-reliance or your own sense of worthiness. All right, I hope, I hope that walking through the common ways of rejecting God's invitation has already solidified that for you. Apart from God's grace, we don't want to come, like it says in verse 3. Or we make light of his grace and the joy that he offers us, like verses 4 and 5. Or we're self-willed, or we're hostile, all right? Remember the larger context that this parable is spoken against the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right, what Jesus is pointing out is that in order to come, in order to accept the invitation, you've got to know that you didn't earn it and that you don't deserve it. You've got to know that you didn't earn it and you don't deserve it. The gospel has to come to you just like it did to the people on the highway, like a complete surprise. Right? This guy's just leaving town and heading back out to his farm, and the messenger comes up and says, the king's son's wedding banquet is ready, and he wants you to come. What's the response to that? Are you kidding me? The king wants me to come? Are you serious? I, I, don't, I've never known, I don't know the king. I'm not even dressed. The king will provide everything for you. Come. Right? That person has the humility to know that they don't deserve uh, to be invited by the king. They're not, they're not his friends. And consider again that Jesus compared the kingdom to a wedding feast. All right, if you're a peasant that eats meat like once or twice a year, the royal feast is almost unimaginable. In order to come to a feast like that, you've got to be hungry. You have to desire the joy and the peace that God is providing. To want to come to a wedding, you've got to desire fellowship and union. It's just like the hymn that we sing, Come Ye Sinners. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Utterly reject self-reliance. Jesus is saying you've got to know that you didn't earn it and that you don't deserve it. But there's a flip side. The second thing that you must have is utter confidence in God's grace. Utter confidence in the king's love. 
look at the parable again as a whole. See how gracious the king is. He invites people, and they accept, and they don't come. Right? They turn him down. So what does he do? He doesn't cast them off. He sends other messengers in verse 4 and 5. And he pleads with them. If you don't like those messengers, I'll send you other ones. And they're going to describe how great and joyful and joyous and wonderful the feast is. They're going to entice you to come. Look, I know that you said you would and you didn't and you betrayed me, but I'll send you, I'll send you someone else. And they're going to tell you about my grace and my kindness and the feast and how wonderful it's going to be. God does this with each one of us. When we turn him down, when we don't like, uh, when we don't like the, you know, the preaching that we hear, he'll use something else in our life to bring a recognition of God's grace to us. And then when they make light of those calls, he still sends other messengers. And when they kill those messengers... He disciplines them, and then he begins to call again. God himself came in the flesh, and we killed him. And he rose from the dead and said, I forgive you. Please come to the kingdom. Please come and be forgiven. Your time is not infinite, but you can be sure of this. It doesn't matter how you've treated God or his invitations in the past. He is gracious and forgiving, and he's still calling out to you today. The people on the highways, the ones who legitimately accepted the king's offer, they were humble enough that the invitation came as a surprise, but they believed the king's goodness enough that they came anyway. You see that? They were humble enough that they were surprised by the offer, but they believed in his grace enough to actually come, and you have to have both. If you have only the pride that says, my sins are too great and God will never accept me, then you'll never come. And that's true whether we're talking about coming to Christ in a saving way or coming to Christ for that continual renewal and deepening of relationship that happens with us as Christians. Right? If, you, if, if your thought is, my sins are too great and God will never accept me, I've got to wait till I can clean up, you'll never come to God. But on the other hand, if you think of yourself as good without Jesus, then you won't see why you need to come. Or you'll just push your way in on your own terms instead of God's. It won't work. Friends, God has purposed a wedding of himself with humanity. A marriage of his son with his people, the church. And just like the parable that we're reading today, this wedding is provided at God's cost. It, it was provided at the cost of his own son. Jesus came and lived the good life that you actually never really wanted to live. And he died the death that you should have. And he's going to cover you with his own righteousness like a garment and make you fitted for the marriage of heaven and earth. His body and blood are the food that he provides, and he is the bridegroom, ready to take the church to himself. And when you believe that, when you know that, when that is sunk into your bones, what will that do for you? Well, you can't really look at the cost that Jesus paid and be indifferent. When you see everything that Jesus did for you, 
and makes you want to live for him. It melts away all of your hostility, and it shows you to be the lie that it really is. You want to know why that's true? Because nothing destroys hostility like being shown grace when you're at your, you are at your absolute ugliest and angriest. You know what I'm talking about. When you do or say, you know, the most hurtful thing that you can think of, and instead of retaliating, the person shows you grace and love and kindness that melts you. In your, in our most hateful moment possible, in killing God's own son, God, in that very moment, was showing you love and grace through what you were doing to him. Incidentally, if, if you want peace in your relationships where you have conflict, this is the way to do it. To receive at a deep level and then begin to imitate God in returning good for evil. And of course, seeing what Jesus has done for us humbles all kinds of pride. It humbles the pride that says that you're too bad to be loved and the kind that says that you need no love at all. There's one thing that you can take from this parable. so that Jesus teaches us that God is calling. Continually, graciously calling. He's calling you, perhaps to come to Christ in a saving way. Or calling you to know him more deeply in this area of your life or your heart or that one. Hear the call of God as he speaks to you. See, he says, all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come in the person of your son and taken on human flesh and provided eternal joy and peace with you through his death and resurrection, that you've given us his righteousness to wear as a garment, that we have his status as sons and daughters in your house forever by his sacrifice. Thank you for providing all things for the wedding. And Lord, I pray for us that the gospel would be impressed into our minds and hearts that we might be humble enough to receive it and that we might be bold enough to believe in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.